Hi, this is Louis Canio. Welcome to the Doctor and Dad podcast. This fast-paced weekly podcast delves into the latest scientific findings on how we can all live longer and better lives. I'm the dad, and my daughter, Nicole, is a family medicine doc who trained at the renowned Cleveland Clinic. We hope you enjoy this short, informative show, and please be sure to visit thedoctorandad.com. Uh, and by the way, the doctor is abbreviated in that. So it's T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for the show notes um, and other resources to help you learn about extending your health span. Within the notes, you'll find links to a bunch of stuff we discussed. So be sure to check it out. And thanks for listening. Hi, doctor. Hi, dad. So I have to tell you, I bet you my view beats your view right now most likely <laughs> i i am uh, overlooking rangeley lake in northern maine or northwestern maine uh, and uh, the clouds are just clearing and the uh, water is uh, stunningly blue uh, amongst all the gr- the greenery around here there's not a, a whole lot of civilization but but some so uh, and you are stifling in Omaha. Yeah, I'm in my right? kitchen in Omaha, Nebraska, and it's 100 degrees. So not in your not in your kitchen though, right? Not in my kitchen. Thank <laughs> fortunately. Thankfully, the AC is still working. Good, good. Well, I I hear that we're going to get a taste of that um, back east. It might hit hit 100 in Portland tomorrow. So Ooh. hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll cool off where you are as well. Yes. So. So uh, this week we are doing something different. Instead of doing a deep dive on a single topic and study, we're going to survey a variety of recent interesting research that we've come across uh, on health span. Uh, and I think in particular, it's important to note that we're going to link to all the studies because we're not going to, to go in, in depth. So if, if folks uh, are interested in one or more of these, they're definitely going to want uh, to, uh, to check out the show notes. Um, which are available online, um, and our uh, opening and closing credits tell you how to get there. So uh, the first one uh, I've entitled, Popeye was right. Uh, so for those of, of you who, who are too young to remember the, the, the Popeye cartoons, uh, Popeye would, uh, when, he, when he needed to get strong, would, would pop a can of spinach and, uh, and, and down it, and all of a sudden his muscles would grow, and he would get strong. Well, it turns out um, that um, that was more than just a uh, kind of a fictitious creation. Um, there's a study um, called, uh, ecto, if I pronounce this correctly, ectodosteroids as a non-conventional, non-conventional anabolic agent. Uh, so we've all heard of anabolic steroids. And I actually had to, to, to research what anabolic meant. Yeah. So anabolic is the opposite of catabolic. And apparently there there are two um, uh, metabolic mechanisms um, at work in our bodies. Anabolic builds up stuff, including muscles, and catabolic breaks them down. So um, I I learned that in the the research for 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 this. But essentially, this uh, these um, ectosteroids are an ingredient in 
a variety of plants and and um, animals, uh, at least animals um, that like fish, uh, but primarily plants, like including spinach, and they actually have been shown to potentially have more of a a, a positive effect on muscle gain and strength gain than even the anabolic steroids potentially like testosterone or other some of the other um, you know banned um, steroids Hmm. that that uh, athletes have, have used so this study was was particularly looking at okay you know should the uh you know the authorities like uh the olympic uh, committee be banning these substances even though they're natural and and testing for them interesting so it, it is in terms of the the impact and, and um you know if you google this um ectodesterone sterone uh, you will find that the uh the the you know spinach um pills so to speak are available on amazon mm-hmm. as supplements <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh so in this this study was done recent very published very recently in, in like july uh 2019 but the uh the first study i i found that uh, linked these ectodesterones to uh, to muscle gain and strength gain goes back to 2016 so it's you know it's kind of it's kind of out there um, and what they found, so we need to kind of put this in context. So they, they, they um, separated the, this group of, I think it's 46 um, um, participants in the study to, into three groups. So uh, a, a control group with, so, so they, the, these guys, the control group got, got a placebo, and then there's a low dose and a high dose group. So they, they, they saw more of an impact, obviously, in the, in the high dose group. And in that high dose group, if you were just eating spinach instead of taking the, you know, the, 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 the supplement that, that uh, mm-hmm. grabbed this ectodesterone from the spinach, you would have to eat between one and 16 kilograms of spinach daily. So that's was going to be my question is, what is the amount of this stuff? You'd obviously have to be taking this in a capsulated, concentrated form because one to 16 kilos, that's a, and spinach is pretty light. So that'd be a yeah. lot of spinach. <laughs> that'd be a lot. Exactly. Now, and we have to always, we, we remember we had our, our discussion on supplements and uh, a while back and we always have to warn people when, you know, before you go out mm-hmm. and grab a bunch of these supplements and uh, the, the degree to which this ingredient is in those supplements and the degree to which things that, that are um, either fillers or potentially toxic to you uh, are in those su- mm-hmm. uh, supplements is, is not regulated right. generally. So it's, it's kind of a crapshoot around that. So before you, before you run out and grab a bunch of these, it, it one of the interesting aspects of this was that they, um, they found that there was no toxicity, either liver or kidney, which, which can be the case with other steroids. So, you know, it almost looks like a, you know, if you can get, if you can get a pure enough form mm-hmm. and, and all that sort of thing, it almost looks like a magic bullet, but again, um, not a, a ton of, um, of testing. And obviously, 
um, just your 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 average everyday anabolic steroids have been shown to have a lot of adverse side effects. Yeah. So, so we don't more endorse, study could we, turn. We up. don't endorse you go find them, but it's interesting. Right. It is. It is indeed. So, that's mine. What What do you got? So the next one is about sleep, um, and a lot of people. I would I would even say most people who work a regular work week um, and have weekends off probably say that they sleep a little bit more on the weekends than the weekdays. And I think a common thought is maybe you can make up for some poor sleep during the week when you're getting up early for work or staying up late um, and on the weekends by sleeping in. And I think that's usually something where people feel like you know, it can, it can kind of counteract your poor sleep during the week. This study here says that your quote unquote sleeping in doesn't actually mitigate the negative metabolic changes um, from your sleep deficit during the week. So you can't really um, make up for loss of sleep by sleeping in on the weekends. This particular study, which is unfortunate because it would be nice if you could kind of reset Um, but this study took people and assigned them, they were just healthy young adults and assigned them into three different groups, either the control group, which was just regular old sleep, um, not restricted or sleeping in. Um, and then there was a sleep restriction group without weekend recovery. So they were like a five hour a night sleep. And then there was a sleep restriction with weekend recovery. So they were sleeping um, for about five hours on the weekdays and then longer on the weekend nights. Um, that's That sounds more like my pattern. That's most, I would say that's probably most people's pattern. My pattern too, I probably get an extra maybe hour on the weekends. Um, so from there, they looked at all kinds of different things. Um, And what we are usually looking at when it comes to sleep, or we've done a podcast on it before, is looking at insulin sensitivity and how that changes with your sleep, because it's generally linked to um, decreased insulin sensitivity, um, and then a lot of other kind of metabolic derangements that are not ideal. So what they found was a couple of interesting things. The sleep restriction, meaning not having the opportunity to recover, um, and the weekend recovery groups, um, both of them, because that's, there's some degree of insufficient sleep, increased after dinner energy intake and body weight versus their baseline. So body weight went up and they're taking in more um, energy or presumably calories after dinner. Calories, yeah. So I wouldn't have thought that necessarily, um, but that was um, across the board for both the people who were sleeping in to make up for their deficit and those who just want a kind of more sleep deficit. Um, and they did say that the weekend recovery participants were sleeping about 1.1 hours more on the weekends than baseline. Um, and on those days, their after dinner energy intake decreased. So they, they ate more 
took in more after dinner when they were sleep deprived during the week, but on the weekends when they slept more, it wasn't as bad. Um, So that's one thing. And then during recurrent insufficient sleep following the weekend, the circadian rhythm phase was delayed um, and after dinner energy intake and body weight increased. So kind of same kind of thing. Um, And then in the sleep restriction group, so again, those are the ones who are not recovering on the weekends. The whole body insulin sensitivity decreased about 13% um, compared to baseline, which is a fair amount. Pretty significant. And then yeah. the weekend recovery, so we're restricted during the week and make, trying to make up for it on the weekends, the whole body um, insulin sensitivity decreased by between 9 and 27%. So I would call that the same or potentially more. Um, mm-hmm. during the recurrent insufficient sleep. So you're not able to make up for the metabolic changes that we see with decreased sleep by kind of just sleeping on the weekends. The best, best outcome in this group are those ones who are able to sleep in this case, nine hours <laughs> had the opportunity to sleep nine hours a night, which is no surprise, but generally you want to try to shoot for seven or more hours a night every night exactly exactly and and um, for specific um, kind of uh, strategies on better sleep you can refer to our uh, actually two-part sleep uh, podcast Mm -hmm. um, from from several i think months ago now um and and certainly the show notes in that uh, offer some pretty good links as well yep so good stuff well the next one is uh studied the relationship between having a purpose in life or meaning having meaningfulness in your life and um, and how long uh, people lived or their risk of dying so is there you know is, is there an association between those two and and lo and behold um, there is an association so this this study looked at um, people who are older than 50 years old um, and participated. These are, this is, it was a U.S. study. So these people are all participating in something called the U.S. Health and Retirement Study. Uh, so there's about 7,000 adults they looked at, again, older than 50 years old. They gave them a psychological questionnaire um, to assess the degree of, of feeling purposeful in their life. Um, and they used a scale from from one to six, but they then chopped that scale up into five segments. So the lowest scores were one to 2.99. And then it went in, in one point segment, so to speak. So the next segment was three to 3.99 on up to six. Um, And what they found in the study was a significant correlation between having life purpose and all cause mortality, so dying from any um, from any cause, uh, and that um, you know the, the the kind of the statistical way to to kind of uh, um, measure that association is called hazard ratio, which we've talked about in the past. And that so the hazard ratio here is two point four three for um, that correlation between life purpose and um, and all cause mortality. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what that means is you're almost two and a half times more likely to die younger if you score low on life purpose versus high. Right. Do I, do I have that yes. right? Okay. Awesome. Um, and which is obviously significant. 
Um, and they also took a look at um, the um, uh, cause specific mortality association. So they found that heart circulatory and blood conditions um, had a, had an even higher hazard ratio of 2.66. So very, very, um, very um, strongly correlated um, and, and something else. I, so I went in and they've got a bunch of charts associated with this, but essentially the probability, according to these charts, the probability of surviving 70 months um, from when you start, you know, at any, take any point in time. So I'm, you know, if I, if I look at myself right now and then I go out 70 months, so almost six years, mm-hmm. um, if I am, low on, um, if I am low on life purpose, my probability of surviving, um, was 74% in this study, Mm -hmm. this study would indicate versus in the, in the two highest categories. So not the very highest, but two highest categories, let's say it was between 86 and 87%. So Hmm. I'd have a 13% higher chance of, um, of, of dying. I think that, that would indicate within that, within that 70 month period. Right. So hmm. the, I think the thing that is, is kind of most interesting. So not only, you know, is, is it interesting that there is definitely a correlation, but I think it's, it's uh, people also ought to realize that, that life purpose is a modifiable risk factor. In other words, it, it isn't just, you have, right. <laughs> you have a feeling of purpose or it's not. Um, and, and lots of studies have been done on, um, okay, how, how to build li- uh, more, a more purposeful life. So the, the, the three uh, um, kind of key strategies here is, is volunteering has been shown to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, can, you can have well-being therapy, so get some, some help if you're really kind of struggling with this. And meditation, which we talked about in a recent recent podcast yep. um, as being positive. So, so if you, if you're feeling kind of purposeless um, or um, lacking meaning in your life, don't, uh, don't just uh, say, okay, I'm going to put up with it because a, it can shorten your life and B it's uh, you, you can, you can definitely do things to, to change that. Yeah. Interesting. So the next one that we have is about eggs. Um, this is one that I was particularly interested in because I like eggs and me too. I wish <laughs> don't tell me anything I bad. About eggs. So eggs and the public, I think is, you know, confused and not just because we, we hear eggs are bad first, you know, eggs, particularly the egg yolks are bad. They're related to cardiovascular disease. You know, the egg white omelet is the way to go. Well then fast forward and then we had a little bit better studies and it kind of showed neutral you know eggs are eggs are neutral um data was very modest in the risk that it was showing or not at all and then it was even to the point where it was like no eggs are eggs are good that cholesterol in eggs is not harmful you can eat your eggs every day um and we might be seeing that pendulum swing a little bit now back towards the dietary cholesterol and eggs are maybe not so great. Um, so again, this is, this is an observational study, um, which means it's just correlation and there are, there are, you know, other potential 
confounding factors that could be involved. Um, but this was a, a good, a pretty good study. Um, and it's looking at the association of dietary cholesterol in eggs um, associated with um, cardiovascular disease and mortality. So cardiovascular disease endpoints, meaning like heart attacks and um, heart disease, stroke, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and mm-hmm. death. So the question that they were kind of asking was, is consuming dietary cholesterol in eggs associated with an increase here? Um, so they, and I'll give you a, the, the end result first, um, they did see that there was a increase in your risk of cardiovascular disease when eating eggs regularly. So they followed almost 30,000 adults um, from a bunch of different cohorts in the United States, and they followed them up over an average of 17 and a half years. So it's a good study. It's a good um, number of people, and it's a good follow-up time. Some of the studies we had before were really short or didn't have a lot of people in them. Um, So this was designed as well as you can for an observational study. And what they what they were finding was that each additional 300 milligrams of dietary cholesterol consumed per day was significantly associated with a higher risk of incident cardiovascular disease. And that 300 milligrams of dietary cholesterol um, comes out to be like three to four eggs a week. So not that, huh. not that much, really just like not your omelet once, once a week. Um, once a week. So it's, yeah. So increased with higher incident of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. So that sounds scary. Um, And each additional half an egg consumed per day was significantly associated with a higher risk, again, of both of those things. Wow. So that initially sounds, you know, like, oh, gosh, don't eat any eggs anymore. Um, But just a couple things to, to look at with that. I think what this really is showing is just that we may be taking another look at how dietary cholesterol affects cardiovascular disease because we used to think that it affected it a lot. And then we started to find that maybe it doesn't affect it much at all. And that maybe certain types of cholesterol of kind of dietary cholesterol, the cholesterol you take in affects it, but other kinds of dietary cholesterol doesn't. Um, There have been studies that show that, you know, certain types like, cholesterol from animal fat or meat, Mm -hmm. you know, doesn't affect your actual cholesterol numbers as much as we thought. So, I mean, this is something that's being studied actively because we just don't exactly know. Um, But I think what it says is maybe we should kind of swing back to maybe watching overall our dietary cholesterol, what we're taking in and just, you know, do things in moderation. The absolute difference was not huge. So the, the difference in not taking in that extra cholesterol and taking it in, as far as your cardiovascular disease risk, the, the difference was like between one and 4% increased risk, which isn't, is definitely still significant, but it's not like you were like bound to, to have. Right. Disease. Like you had a, you went from a 2% chance to a 80% right, chance exactly. of dying. The other interesting yeah. thing is um, the risks were not seen in those people with very low cholesterol at baseline. And what they 
define as very low cholesterol is an LDL, a baseline LDL. So like your bad cholesterol when you're not treated with any medication, less than 70. Um, that's about one to 3% of the population. Um, but those people did not see the increased risks when they, when they took in more cholesterol. So that could mean a couple different things, either the number of people that, that, that fit that profile was low. So the findings weren't great because your N, your number in the study is low, Um, or is it because they're just biologically different in the way that they, um, process cholesterol? The other thing to note too, as we talked about in a recent podcast is there is an individual difference in how the diet and the dietary response to this stuff. So someone who takes in bacon and eggs in the morning, you know, is going to notice an increase in their actual cholesterol and the next person might not because um, we had talked about how, you know, your genes play a role and your gut biome plays a role and all this other stuff. So. Exactly. And I, I, I remember hearing something around like 30% of people, um, their, their blood cholesterol level is affected by the cholesterol they take in. Um, right. And, and, and a, and a majority of people are not. Mm-hmm. So, and, but the only way you know that is to, you know, have some pretty extensive testing done, you know, so the average individual is, there's no way they're going to know if they're in the 70% or the 30% category. But then I wonder too, yeah. if that's correct, because this study is showing, you know, I think the, 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 the relationship, but I think it could, it could be that you could, you could have that 70, 30 yeah. ratio, yeah. but still overall in your, in your cohort study, find significant. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because of that 30% weighting. Or right. Whatever. So, uh, so and it's so, funny, I, I read a little um, blurb from the author of this, who I believe is a cardiologist, um, and they asked him if he's changed his egg intake because of this, his study, this study. And he said he has, actually, but because he said that his son called him out because he said, didn't you just you know, write a paper on this as he's making his omelets. So he usually will make his omelet with one egg and then egg whites. So it's moderation. <laughs> yep. Well, it's a, you're right. I used to eat egg white uh, omelets a bunch. And then when that, right. when the, when the, the, that study information came out, said, eh, and eggs aren't so bad. Then I, then I, I, I got away from that. So maybe it's time to go back to it because obviously egg whites, great source of protein. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and with, without the, uh, without the cholesterol downside. Yeah. So cool. Well, I get, I have two, uh, next on, on gut bacteria, which we, we've touched on, um, and, and the importance of it. And obviously we've touched on it in, in, um, previous podcasts. So, um, so first, you know, just, just quick refresher, you know, our, our guts, particularly our large intestine, um, is full of, um, of not only bacteria, but fungi and other organisms, uh, one celled organisms, and then the, uh, the, the bacteria, multicellular organisms. Um, and, and the large intestine in particular is lined with a layer of mucus and the microbes that live there form like a biofilm uh, and play a huge, huge role. Or in, and we're finding out uh, just how big a role they play in a, not only our overall health, 
the way we digest foods, and even in um, because of neurotransmitters that are, are associated with that in our in our moods and our you know whether um, we're depressed or, or what have you. So it's it's a um, it's an emerging field of study with with potentially significant uh, uh, impacts and effects on us. So the first one is okay. If you're, the, the quality of your gut biome is important, can we supplement with something and, 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 and get a positive result? So um, this, uh, this study looked at the supplementation with this thing called, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, slaughter the, the, the uh, pronunciation, but I'll give it a shot. It's Ackermansia municipifila. Uh, so I'm just going to call it AM. And for sure, it's a, it's a type of bacteria. And they looked at um, giving people um, with who had um, um, who, who had uh, who were overweight or um, obese and or insulin resistant. So they have 40 uh, were enrolled, but only 32 completed the trial. So we have to know small subset of people. It went on for, for, for three months, uh, the supplementation. Um, and, but what they found is when they, when they, um, the, the, the group that was, that had the supplementation. So it was, they, they split it 16. were in that group, 16 in a, in a placebo, uh, control group that the, um, those who took this, um, they call it pasteurized AM had significantly improved insulin sensitivity and total cholesterol and decreases in several blood markers of inflammation and liver dysfunction. They had also decreased body fat, fat mass and waist circumference. Um, And they, but although they noted the, the, the difference in the last three criteria weren't statistically significant, but they were there, they were observed. Um, So it talks about um, the the fact that um, that this supplementation definitely they they, they saw a, a a benefit to it um, with, at least with this particular bacteria um, and there are uh, there are tests available you got to st- send in a stool sample essentially that will test your um, your for your specific gut bacteria because the interesting thing is everyone's got a unique signature when it comes to their gut bacteria no no two people are the same and we've got enough research now um, on indicating what is a kind of positive gut bacteria environment versus negative for things like um, uh, weight and uh, metabolic disorders, um, insulin sensitivity, even up to, to diabetes. So there's enough of a database there. Um, the one that I had looked at, um, never pulled the trigger on though. Um, it was a, it was free because it was part of a study group. So you, the, 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 the trade-off is, uh, you got the free analysis, but you agreed that your results, um, but not your name, obviously attached to those results could be used in this study. And you answered some other questions on, you know, your weight, whether you had metabolic disorders, all, all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, so good stuff there yeah. um, and, and interesting stuff. And, and we'll find out, but I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if in five years, some sort of, you know, supplementation around this is pretty routine. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, uh, the second one on, on, um, 
on gut bacteria was on the effect of exercise on gut bacteria. So instead of taking a pill, if you go out and do cardiovascular um, uh, workouts, uh, endurance workouts, are they going to have any effect on, on gut bacteria? Um, this um, was, again, not a, not a huge study. It, it had uh, 32 people involved, so very similar to the, to the number of the previous one, looked at them over six weeks. And these were previously sedentary subjects. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they participated in six weeks of supervised endurance-based exercise training um, that progressed from 30 minutes to 60 minutes uh, per day, um, three days a week. Um, and from moderate to vigorous intensity. Um, and then they returned to a sedentary lifestyle. Um, and again, control group versus, which didn't exercise versus uh, the 18 people or 16 people who did exercise. And what they found was um, pretty significant exercise-induced alterations in the gut um, microbiota. Uh, which is microbiome. Um, But they also found that it was somewhat dependent upon obesity status. So if you were lean when you started this, and and even though you were sedentary, you're lean versus being obese when you started this exercise activity, there was was a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, and and the more favorable results were in the lean folks versus the, the overweight folks. So, the, the kind of the conclusions here is one exercise to be lean and second be lean or, you know, I don't know which one's prioritized. Here. Right. Uh, but if you're, if you're relatively leaner and you exercise, you're going to have positive uh, effects on your, on your gut bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with all those, with all those downstream positive effects. Right. So we've got, couple more? Yeah, a couple more. So I will do these next. I'm just going to kind of gloss over these next three because they're really interesting. They could all probably be a full podcast by themselves. But in the interest of, you know, making this go too long or people stop caring to listen, I'll just give the little <laughs> um, kind of outcome. Yeah, give us give us the uh, give us the in a nutshell. And we may, like you said, dive deep into any one of these in the future. Yeah. So the the next one is the question of alcohol um and is it is there any amount that's beneficial and the answer to that is no so it wasn't too long ago that we said one drink a day for women and two drinks a day for men of alcohol um and kind of any alcohol but maybe you know red wine might be a little better is actually beneficial for your cardiovascular health because of some studies that were done um And I think that gave people a false sense of security around drinking alcohol. And again, the recommendation there was still one a day for women and two a day for men. But now we're seeing that no amount of alcohol is safe or beneficial. um, And any amount is associated with increased risks of X, Y, Z. So this particular study looked at um, alcohol use and its burden in 195 countries and territories between 1990 and 2016 and it was a big systemic analysis and essentially just what they found was it's alcohol use is the leading risk factor for global disease burden and causes substantial health loss um, and the risk of all cause mortality and of cancer specifically raises um, or rises a lot with increasing levels of consumption so 
alcohol is tied to increased risk of almost all cancers. Um, and the level of consumption um, that minimizes health loss is zero. So there's no, no beneficial amount um, and all of it, it can be potentially um, detrimental for all kinds of different reasons, not just because there's increased risk of, of accidents and that sort of thing. So um, this is actually more depressing to me than the, than your egg <laughs> study. <laughs> so, but, so I, I mean, uh, again, it's people are going to drink alcohol, but this is about this is another one about moderation um, and knowing that. Yeah, and just don't don't fool ourselves exactly. into thinking we're 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 drinking because it's good for exactly. us. Exactly. Yeah, good point. The next one, um, which is another kind of common one, um, is the association with exercise and weight loss. So. I always tell people or patients that weight loss, weight gain is almost all your diet, unless you're someone who's able to work out for hours a day and burn a lot of calories. Um, it takes a lot of work to burn calories during working out, and it is really easy to even eat two handfuls of almonds and make up for all the calories you burned in a really, really, really hard workout. Um, so people, everybody will underestimate the calories they take in and overestimate the calories they think they burn when they're exercising. So that alone is, I, in my opinion, the reason why people don't feel like they lose enough weight when they exercise. But this study is looking into a, another potential reason. Um, and what it found was that people who are exercising so they have their X amount of exercise time, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day, however many minutes a day um, where they're exercising, which is great. And that's giving you kind of a energy deficit, which is what you need to lose weight is counteracted by less physical activity and all of the rest of your non-exercise time during the day. So you exercise, but that means you're either because you exercise, you feel um, like you can be more sedentary or because mm -hmm. you exercise or or maybe you exercise because you have a desk job and you can't do, you know, much else throughout the day. Regardless, it's showing that those who are exercising um, are being less active in their non-exercise time. And it's kind of something that you probably don't even realize. Um, and then there's another study out, too, that's looking at this. And it, it shows that people who are exercising will eat an average of, like, almost a hundred calories more a day when they exercise compared to when they don't. And it's probably just something you, and I know I have done that, play that same game where it's like, well, I worked out pretty hard today so I can, I'm going to have this ice cream or whatever. Um, so I think it's just subtle subconscious things that people do in addition to overestimating how much they think that they're actually burning during exercise. So when it comes to yeah. weight, you got to pay the most attention to the, what you're taking in and exercise is there, you know, it can help a little bit, but for your more for your cardiovascular health and, and mood and that kind of stuff. Overall fitness level. Yep. 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 No doubt about it. And that's why, you know, I kind of go back to fasting as the, the, the best or, or like time restricted yep. eating as the best weight management strategy, yep. most effective yep. weight management strategy. And then the last one I'll just be brief on um, is common medications like Benadryl or these um, anticholinergic is what we call them medications. So Benadryl, Dramamine, which are those like scopolamine patches for seasickness. Um, Oxybutamine is another common one that's used for overactive bladder. Um, Spireva is 
is another anticholinergic, just common kind of medications. And also some antidepressants are shown to be linked to different types of dementia. Um, so this was looking at almost 60,000 patients with diagnosis of dementia and matched control control patients. Um, and there was a statistically significant association of dementia risk with those who were taking these type of medications. Um, so what I would take away from that is some people are taking a Benadryl a night to help them fall asleep because it makes you drowsy. Um, and we talked before about how that can alter your, you know, your sleep cycles, but now we're also seeing that, you know, doing something that you feel like would otherwise be like, what's the harm? It's just a Benadryl, um, can now potentially be linked to increased risk of dementia. So just cause it's a common, you know, commonly used and otherwise safe medication, we're seeing some linked risk there. If you, if you chronically use right. it or, or Correct. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. like I used to, I, I used to, because I, I, I'm challenged around sleep, particularly waking up and then getting back to sleep. And I found if I took that 25 milligram dose, I could get back to sleep easier yeah. than, yeah. Uh, yeah. than if I didn't. But I think a couple of years ago, uh, we were talking about this and you're like, do not do that. And, and it, obviously it wasn't related to this particular study you're referencing, but you must have just known yeah. that it w- just wasn't a good thing to regularly take that drill. Nightly, yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, we've got, we've gotten through all of them um, in um, somewhat record, record time. <laughs> Hopefully that was interesting to folks again uh, for a deeper dive, check the show notes. Nicole, I know you've got to run, yes. so uh, great connecting with you. Look forward to our next conversation. Sounds great. Enjoy the lake. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Keep going. Thanks again for listening. You can visit thedoctorandad.com. That's spelled T-H-E-D-R-A-N-D-D-A-D.com for show notes to any of our podcasts as well as other useful info on extending health span. Now the legal disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Use of this information in show notes is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should not, should not disregard or delay taking medical advice or treatment for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professional for any such conditions. We also want you to know that we take no funding from any product or service that may be mentioned on the Doctor and Dad podcast.